0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today, Wednesday, January 12th, 2020, we're going to be answering the following three questions in our roundup. First up, how important is 214B in evaluating student visa applicants? Second, are we really surprised 90% of colleges are starting in person this spring? And finally, are there lessons to be learned in these two Canadian provinces, Ontario and Nova Scotia? We'll look at these three questions and more today on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. As we do each week, we go into the three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days as news stories have come in from around the world. And each, for those not familiar with the Roundup, we take each of the uh, themes we cover in the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays, SMIE Consulting's All the SMIE News Fit to Share. Uh, That comes in free of charge to your inbox, 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, You can subscribe free of charge at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And you can just hit the subscribe button there, and you'll add yourself to our mailing list for that weekly free newsletter that comes out Monday mornings. Uh, We picked those themes from the newsletter. I'll be dropping the copy to the link of this week's edition of the uh, newsletter in the comments section on the Facebook page for our live chat on Wednesdays. Uh, If you're not subscribed to the newsletter yet, please do do make sure you do that so you get all the news each Monday so you have a a little bit of a head start on understanding and maybe guessing what the three themes and questions we're gonna be answering on the roundup on Wednesdays. So with the first question, how important is 214B in evaluating international student visa applicants for U.S. bound students, now for those not familiar, uh, during the Trump administration, there had been language in the Foreign Affairs Manual, and that manual is what U.S. consular officers use overseas when they're adjudicating uh, visa applicants. Uh, they it walks them through the steps that they need to take in evaluating uh, each applicant for uh, that applies for a non-immigrant visa. And in particular, related to international students, there had been language that was taken out of the foreign affairs manual that related to 214B. 214B is basically the part of the immigration regulations that uh, covers student immigrant student visa applicants that has to do with non-immigrant intent. That's what 214B basically uh, is a requirement that every that an applicant. Uh, who is applying for a non-immigrant visa category, like a F-1 student visa, M-1, J-1, has to show non-immigrant intent when they are applying for their visa uh, and basically prove a negative that they do not plan to uh, emigrate to the United States because they're applying for a non-immigrant visa. The way the category is set up, that's in the past, has been very much a typical um barrier that international students have to have to rise above in order to eventually be approved for a student visa. Now, during the Trump administration, there was language that had been entered in the Obama administration that allowed consular officers more flexibility in how they interpreted 214B uh, when it comes to immigrant intent uh, or non-immigrant intent uh, for for students. That language had been added in the Obama administration to say, hey, as an 18-year-old, will you really know what you want to do with the rest of your life and have well-defined ties at 18 back to your home country beyond perhaps just your family? You're not going to have property. You're not going to have a home. Uh, you may not even have a job yet. Uh, that you, uh, is, is, is guaranteed for you. So for most international students, particularly those who are coming out of high school, going to university in the U.S., to, to show that you have no tie, that you show that you're uh, that you have no plans to immigrate to the United States when you're done with your studies even though you have or uh, work opportunity available to you for as a degree seeking student through OPT from anywhere from one to three years for each degree level you study uh, that to have your whole life planned out at 17 18 years old when you're applying for a student visa before you come to the US and to have demonstrable, uh, evidence of your ties to your home country, uh, and ties to home country is really uh, re- is, is, as it's defined in the foreign affairs manual. Manual a residence abroad, uh, property in that in your home country, uh, that uh, jobs, uh, other investments in that home country that would necessitate a return after studies. So the language that's in that was re- has now been replaced back into the foreign affairs manual. Uh, goes through the the context uh, related to visa holder visa visa applicants and the question here is the context of the resident and here's what uh, quote from what's been inserted back in the context of the residence abroad requirement for student visas inherently differs from the context for B visitor visas or other short-term visas the statute clearly presupposes that the natural circumstances and conditions of being a student do not necess do not disqualify applicant from obtaining a student visa it is natural that the student does not possess ties of property employment continuity of life that typical b visitor visa applicants would have these ties are typically weekly held by student applicants Uh, and as the student is often single unemployed without property and is at the stage of life in deciding and developing their plans for their future. Student visa adjudication is made more complex by the fact that student students typically are expected to stay in the United States uh, longer than do many other non-immigrant visitors to complete their program of studies from two years for a master's degree, four years for a bachelor's, maybe five or six years for a Ph.D., in these, and the quote, continuing from the Foreign Affairs Manual, in these circumstances, it is important to keep in mind that the applicant's intent is to be adjudicated based on present intent, not on contingencies of what might happen in the future after a lengthy period of study in the United States. Therefore, the residence abroad requirement for student applicants should be considered in the context of the usual limited ties that a student would have and um, their immediate intent. So uh, that, that's, the, that's the more positive piece uh, that was reinserted in that does give the flexibility to consular officers to uh, to evaluate in context uh, what an international student at a younger age is actually able to say with any degree of certainty about their intent to uh, as to what they're going to do when they're done with their studies in four, five, six, eight, nine years, depending on how many degrees they might do in the U.S. So... They is uh, an important, and what they do, the exception to this is, uh, as is written, while students may not be able to demonstrate the same strong ties present in other classes of applicants, their typical youth often conveys a countervailing major advantage in establishing their bona fides. Uh, They are not expected to or do not necessarily have a long-range plan and may legitimately not be able to fully explain their plans at the conclusion of their studies. As most students are relatively young and mainly reside with parents or guardians, you can consider a student to be maintaining a residence abroad if she intends to return to reside with the parents or guardians. Nonetheless, you must be satisfied at the time of application for a visa that the visa applicant possesses the present intent to depart the United States at the conclusion of his or her approved activities. That this intention is subject to change or even likely to change is not a sufficient reason to deny a visa. Further, the present intent to depart Does not infer the need to return to the country from which they hold a passport. It means only that they must intend to leave the United States upon completion of studies. So, that language now being reinserted into the Foreign Affairs Manual and being hopefully implemented and taken on board by consular officers in the field around the world should certainly make it a much easier task for a young visa applicant, student visa applicant, to successfully obtain a visa to come to the United States. So that's really positive news. And I think when you think, when you look, and anyone who's been in international ed for more than a minute, and has worked directly with students, preparing them for that visa interview, these are the kinds of things that have oftentimes, particularly in the most recent uh, administration, uh, were the real challenges. How do we get students to be able to prove a negative that they do plan to return home? And uh, are they overcoached sometimes in, in years past to, to document those ties and show that they're going to come back and, and make a, have a, a well laid out plan when it's not really practical for a 17, 18 year old to have that well defined a plan uh, before they even get to college and know that what they intend to study is uh, on their you know, on their I-20s, what they'll eventually get their degree in. Things, t- things happen. Times change and, and people change. And particularly in 18, 19, 20-year-old, there's going to be a lot of that. So this language back in the Foreign Affairs Manual is certainly a positive thing. And it's one of those smaller little changes that most folks, just on, a, on an outside level looking in, wouldn't really think that, oh, it's not really changing law or anything like that. It's changing how how uh, individual applicants can be evaluated by consular officers and you really have to get granular and know what happens in these interviews and know the kinds of questions that are asked and how little time uh, the applicants actually have to make their case uh, and the few limited questions that they do get asked. So it's really it's encouraging and if it changes the mindsets of consular officers, and that's really the key here. The language is back in, giving them flexibility, giving them more discretion in this area. Even though the law is still the same, that still says they've got to show non-immigrant intent because that's the visa category that they're applying for. Uh, the, it, this is a step forward that if this, if, if this language is taken on board and the message is received on, by consular officers around the world, it can make the visa application process a lot smoother for international students. So the potential exists For a very positive outcome with this change for hopefully in the fall term when uh, the greater majority of new international students will be enrolling in the United States. So for the newer students we've had this kind of a a real bonus. Uh, There's a Pi News article that talks through this issue and has some of the uh, associations weighing in on their perspective on this, obviously applauding the move uh, to reinsert this language and also to uh, commenting on what really the longer term goal would be to make international students an F1 category dual intent that would allow them uh, to basically not have to justify or have a plan at all, uh, necessarily to return home, that they could potentially stay longer term, and that could that could be uh, remove that uh, 214B hurdle altogether. So there's some real positives coming out. Uh, we had that for the new students this this past week and previous week we had the uh, waiver of in-person uh, visas uh, interviews uh, for students who are. Uh, renewing their visas or who have had maybe other non-immigrant visas before but are now coming back to study, they would not have to necessarily uh, do an in-person visa interview, which is a, uh, something that the consulates abroad really are uh, managing. They're uh, trying to manage things a lot better because they've they've had staff cuts, obviously, with COVID and not, are not up to full strength in many many places and even not able to open full fully for uh, regular visa services yet. So a lot of good news coming 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 out on the State Department front in terms of how students are evaluated, availability of visa appointments, uh, who actually needs to go for a visa appointment. So some real positive energy coming from State Department lately as it relates to uh, the student uh, visa situation. So that's that's the first article uh, question of the day. So, how important is two fourteen B? It has been everything in the past for international students as a one of the most significant reason why students get denied visas is because they haven't demonstrated properly to the satisfaction of consular officers their intent to return to the United, to their home country. So, uh, it's absolutely essential. Is it becoming less important? Uh, potentially, yes. Depending on how well uh, or how how much this change to the Foreign Affairs Manual uh, for consular officers is taken on board to give more discretion to a young 17, 18-year-old. So we'll keep our eyes on that one. Obviously, that's a huge issue uh, for international students in terms of why they get denied, and we'll we'll certainly bring you updates as if and when we have more data on this. Second question of the day. Are we really surprised that 90% of U.S. colleges are starting in person this spring? Now, we've all witnessed uh, over the last two years now uh, the impact COVID has had on higher education, on our world. There isn't a facet of life that uh, hasn't been impacted by what's, uh, what's happened with this pandemic. Uh, Though we're not quite yet at the endemic stage where it becomes like the flu that we have. We have a season a year where uh, flu cases increase like it does every winter. We have these surges. We have uh, pharmacies offering flu vaccines. And that's just something that has become a normal part of life. And COVID is moving in that direction. And it is looking like it will always be here. There will always be other variants. Uh, and that's something will just become a fact of life that we have to deal with here in the United States and every other country in the world that is seeing cases. And even those that have handled it well in the past, we've seen uh, China is having lockdowns all across their country, at least in two different provinces. We've seen uh, uh, record cases spiking in Australia. Uh, we've seen uh, other countries, uh, Vietnam recently had uh, spikes in cases, uh, and it got fairly bad there. But the, the with this this Go around. Uh, there's less of um, less of a major concern in terms of hospitalizations and deaths as a result of this particular variant, the Omicron variant. Uh, there are still Delta variants kicking around as well that, that are more tend to be more serious, for, particularly for the unvaccinated. Uh, what we are seeing because vaccination rates have increased dramatically, we're seeing a lot more uh, folks who have been vaccinated getting COVID. Which uh, suggests that vaccinations aren't the be-all and end-all, but they are certainly an important mitigation strategy. uh, By requiring um, uh, by requiring for colleges uh, requiring uh, vaccinations, and eventually many we see are moving in the direction of requiring boosters, uh, booster shots as well. So uh, what we're seeing now is we've we've become uh, we've had over a year of uh, in higher education the full twenty one full. 2020-21 2020-21 academic year was spent in the shadow of COVID. Just that last little quarter of, uh, of the 2019-2020 of the uh, academic year was where COVID first hit and everybody was just going uh, out of their minds trying to figure out how to, how to manage this and conduct classes online and how do you balance having students on campus? Do you send them home? Do you not? How do you deal with your international students? And that's obviously the, the, the lens through which we see this question. Uh, what we are seeing... Is from that experience last year, there were strat- mitigation strategies in terms of social distancing, in terms of masking in, in, in residence halls and inside uh, facilities on campus, that uh, in classrooms, obviously, for those that went, uh, were in person last year. You saw that learned experience on, on just managing the, minimizing the, the, the threat of transmission. It's always there. Um, and there were there were universities, many uh, n- several of which I've I've spoken with directly about how they were treating uh, the uh, the sewage coming out of individual residence halls to determine if uh, any of the uh, COVID. Uh, tracers were were in the in the sewage from uh, coming out of of, uh, of residence hall, so that they can identify. Okay, we got a spike here. The, we need to uh, do ramp up testing in this residence hall. So this past year, there were a lot of great lessons learned on how to manage uh, a pandemic impacting a college and. Colleges that were 30, 40, 50, 60% that stayed in person and have, in terms of having classes in person, a lot of smaller schools were able to successfully do that. Uh, you saw a lot of larger state institutions and some of the more elite schools uh, do mostly online and maybe some hybrid, but uh, smaller schools that uh, really rely on having students on campus for for funding. Uh, they, they couldn't afford to send students home for a full academic year after what they experienced maybe in the spring. So you saw them largely stay in person last year. They've learned lessons in terms of what worked, and they were able to do so without having to go online. Uh, and then you saw folks this, this past fall with a whole new academic year with a year's worth of lessons learned on how to manage uh, COVID. Uh, you see a lot of those strategies being maintained uh, for the when fall semester started. You see that continuing in the spring. You see with those schools that did pushes for uh, mandating vaccines for fall for students to start in the fall. Now seeing that are, uh, ramping up again in the spring. Those that did uh, uh, more and more colleges were requiring it for the spring unless there were state law or uh, system decisions that prevented that from being implemented. Uh, you also saw uh, those colleges that were online last year. Uh, they started in person in the fall. If they, if they were, if they had any big surges, they got a little skittish and decided to go online at the end of last fall. Even though it, we we know Omicron is a, more, a more, the more most highly transmissible variant we've had, but it's also the one that has the least. Uh, The least dangerous symptoms uh, or threats of dangerous symptoms for even unvaccinated folks have uh, uh, the symptoms typically have not been as uh, as dramatic, uh, particularly for those who have underlying health conditions as they had been for Delta or the original variants. So uh, what uh, those colleges that did suddenly go back online at the end of the, end of the fall are, are either delaying their start dates in the spring uh, or starting online in the spring out of an abundance of caution, but the greater majority of schools are clearly not that worried. And there's reason for not being worried. We've talked about the lower, lower, uh, uh, lower significant, uh, significant issues from COVID, the lower, uh, lesser side effects. uh, Though it's more highly transmissible, many of these schools that have these mitigation strategies already in place from last year are now. Some of them are even switching up masking requirements to say cloth masks are no longer visible, are no longer allowed as a sole protector, that you, you would need to you have a, either double-masked or have a, a surgical like N95 mask uh, type uh, requirement. Some colleges are moving that way to, to, to continue to allow in-person uh, classes. So masks will be with us for the foreseeable future uh, for college classrooms. I, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that to be the case uh, for many schools. So we're seeing that seeing the impact of COVID it certainly is long term, uh, and it's certainly one that though uh, most folks would uh, can't wait to see the back of COVID, it's going to be a reality we're going to have in our lives like we have flu uh, every year. We'll get our regular flu boosters every year, uh, COVID boosters every year. Uh, that's uh, we've been getting after the, our first two doses of the initial vaccine. So it's really something that I think. Um, we are, are really coming to grips with as a new reality of uh, our ongoing reality that we'll have to deal with. Uh, what for international students coming to the United States uh, because of the requirement to, become, to be vaccinated uh, for international travelers coming to the US, uh, that, is, that is kind of one step that they're already having to do that prepares them for campus life. Uh, there are a certain number of countries, mostly in Africa that have uh, vaccination rates cr- uh, currently below 10% that are exempt from that. But colleges hopefully are making exemptions for those students that are coming without a vaccine to get them vaccinated uh, before they begin their classes, or at least get that first and first and second dose in within that 30-day window they have after arrival before classes begin. So we'll see what uh, happens in the fall where we have a larger cohort coming, where more of these um, will have more clarity on, on travel by then, I'm sure. Uh, but in terms of um, what this will mean, uh, for for international students uh, uh, related to starting in person. That's what they want. That's what they came for. They're willing to do part hybrid, and that's something the longer term certainly uh, we will have to see if immigration regulations catch up. There's been this kind of... Um, Ongoing, uh, am, not amnesty, but allowance in uh, by DHS to uh, let students take more than one online class per term. They can take uh, as long as there's an in-person component at some point. Uh, they they have that option to continue their studies uh, without that without meeting that uh, immigration regulation requirement. They've given that waiver throughout the 2021-22 academic year. So that would need to continue and would perhaps even be shifted entirely to allow international students more flexibility in terms of how they, are, they conduct their classes um, uh, or can do their classes, and even in some cases may not have options to do fully in-person uh, in the future as some colleges in over the last year and a bit, almost two years, have realized the value that, hey, these larger lecture halls, we really don't need to have in-person uh, classes for that. Uh, we, we can do those online and then have these smaller discussion and lab sections meet in person. So that's that's a new reality that I think immigration will need to catch up with uh, sooner rather than later on a more permanent basis than just a, an exemption during the pandemic. So we'll see where that one goes as well. So it's uh, uh, I'm not surprised that mo- the greater majority of our of colleges are starting in person. What I am surprised is how much press uh, those few colleges that are going online, when you get system schools that start doing that like CSU uh, in California, when you have these uh, elites that are going, uh, making that uh, decision to, uh, to go online to begin, when you had some of the Ivies getting impacted as it did with Cornell at the end of the spring, uh, fall term, that's, it's, I'm surprised they're getting that much press, but maybe I'm not, uh, but it, it, is seem to, it does seem to be getting over, overblown in terms of the higher ed press that, I, that I'm seeing. But uh, certainly, we'll keep our eyes on that as as things develop. Now, our final question of the day, and this comes to us from north of the border. Are there lessons to be learned in these two Canadian provinces, Nova Scotia and Ontario, related to international students and international student enrollment, recruitment, the whole international student management piece, uh, the pathways for these students? Uh, we all know in Canada, just stepping back for a minute on a, on a national level in Canada, we all know that uh, Canada has a much more welcoming front. Uh, f- and. Uh, it- Welcoming pathways for international students, clearly defined pathways for students that want to come from overseas to study, then work, and then become permanent residents and potentially citizens. That those are very clearly laid out for overseas visitors that are looking to come to Canada for eventual immigration immigration purposes. Now that has helped uh, many uh Colleges in Canada that have looked to recruit internationally, that are looking to bolster their budgets to supplement what they are getting from the pro- from the provincial governments, to uh, to really move forward, and particularly on the vocational college fronts, uh, you see that most. Uh, I highlighted most by Ontario's uh, college system, vocational college system. Uh, that that's an important difference. Is uh, co- these colleges when they talk colleges in Canada, more more than any more than likely they're talking about vocational schools. Uh, not quite community colleges, but that's the closest equivalent to them. They're typically three-year programs uh, that uh, for vocational studies that also have work tied into uh, through the pathways that uh, the Canadian government has, ha- has had. Now these colleges, these vocational colleges, are tend, tend to be concentrated in the larger metropolitan areas. So Vancouver, Ontario is really where the bulk of them are. Uh, Quebec, Montreal, uh, they, all, they all have large numbers of these colleges that are more vocational that allow for, uh, that really are magnets for international students. In particular, in, Ontario, in this first case with Ontario, Ontario, uh, a major, the major city is Toronto, that it has a, n- a number of these public colleges. Uh, they received, um, just for an ex- just to give you an example, they received in 2020-21 uh, a total of $1.7 billion in tuition fees from international students enrolled at their home And public-private college partnership campuses. So these the international students made up at these colleges 30 percent of the total student enrollment. Uh, Yet the money that they were bringing in was more than uh, more than the money they received. These colleges received from provincial governments. So only 30 percent of the students are paying for well over half of the total revenue for uh, for 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 those individual uh, public colleges in Canada. And this one is particularly in Ontario that we're talking about here, uh, that are, and the majority of those public colleges are in Toronto, so that these colleges' public positions, um, financial position was main, mainly due to uh, to international student enrollments, so that we we see a lot of a uh, lot of these public colleges are I've become over reliant. On international students uh, for their revenue, uh, we've s- seen a couple of them in the past, and even at a university in the last uh, last couple of years during the pandemic, especially that fell victim to uh, drops in, uh, particularly during COVID, uh, dr- drops in international students from uh, uh, that were as affecting their bottom line and forcing closures of programs. So we have these um, uh, these international students that really have become. Uh, a real, uh, real uh, revenue stream for these public colleges, but perhaps overly so, uh, overly, de- overly dependent. And the dependence is not just, just on international students. It's on international students, primarily 62% of international students, according to um, a good colleague of mine, Alex Usher, uh, at uh, Higher Education Associates uh, in Canada. Uh, higher Education Strategy, Higher Education Strategy Associates in Canada. Uh, they, uh, his organization, he's, he's one of the one of the thought leaders in international ed north of the border that I, I really trust and i have gotten to know well over the past few years. Uh, he said that 62% of international students in these colleges are from India. Sixty-two percent. We're and in, in the U.S. we are were we're, we're, worried were overly overly reliant on Chinese Chinese students, which make up thirty percent, thirty-two percent of our international student population. Uh, so roughly a third. So they're almost at two-thirds of uh, their international students in uh, these public colleges in Ontario are from India. So if anything ever happens uh, in that Canada India relationship, that spells doom for many of these uh, many of these colleges. So uh, what uh, what uh, what we are seeing is that uh, without this international student revenue, uh, one particular one college, Centennial College in particular, told the Canadian Broadcasting Company that it would not be financially viable to run without revenues from international enrollment, which is down significantly this year due to the ongoing global impacts of the pandemic that uh, the, because there's limited oversight limited college oversight of international student recruitment uh, in these colleges public colleges uh, they use uh, are basically using educational agents overseas uh, to bring them in uh, that the, the, they don't have four of the colleges of the 11 uh, selected colleges report reviewed were found not to have an established formal policy to guide the selection and removal of recruitment agencies so not having that policy just in place impacts uh... really quality control and ability to uh... shift gears if uh... clearly agencies aren't working uh... and what you can do um, uh... agencies that make false promises uh... in terms of assure ensuring hundred percent success uh... related to visa assurance and guaranteeing scores on ielts and that all that type of thing so there were the small fraction of agencies were actually Identified to have found to have had these issues, uh, but it does create a reputational risk uh, for public colleges for the public college sector as a whole when those bad actors are become the face of these educational agencies that are funneling all these students to uh, these public colleges. So we'll see where this goes because it's a really uh, interesting one in Ontario. A lot of lot of uh, a lot of potential for for more challenging uh, issues to come then on the flip side you have Nova Scotia Nova Scotia is on the eastern that's one of the what they call the Atlantic provinces uh, on the on the eastern sh- uh, s- side of Canada uh, these provinces are, are not highly populated uh, that are uh, don't have huge towns and cities uh, that are really dependent on uh, have declining demographics that are dependent on this immigrant force coming in to for work and for and for schooling. So uh, what Nova Scotia has done is they've created this study and stay program, uh, where it's really an uh, amped up version of the uh, the, the general Canadian higher, uh, immigration policy that allows uh, is designed to support and in, in the words of this uh, program, uh, its trademark program study and stay. Uh, It's it's designed to support a select group of final year international students uh, completing their post-secondary studies in Nova Scotia. A 10-month program provides participants with career development opportunities while helping them build strong community connections. It includes managerial mentorship, providing opportunities for students to apply their learnings network and gain a deeper understanding of Nova Scotia's workplace culture and job market opportunities. uh, it's uh, really as a way to help them have two to three years of exp- uh, to, to really to, if you want to they're really recruiting mentors to be part of the program, uh, kind of like what our career services office does on most US college campuses. It's trying to better integrate these graduating um, international students into the local communities so that's they're, they're really going above and beyond to really uh, sell and promote their province as a real destination uh, that with a very uh, with a much more well not much more it can't get much more friendly than the overall policies are but to make for a, a, a more personal connection with these students and give them more incentive to stay after they're done with their studies because they, they depend on them. So we'll see where that goes, and that impacts how these institutions are also handling this current Omicron surge that you see uh, uh, as many U.S. colleges did at the early stages of the pandemic by keeping residence halls open for international students or finding uh, places for them to stay. Uh, Nova Scotian institutions right now are doing the same thing. Uh, that, that they're able to still move in to their, or stay in the residence halls uh, even though the Omicron uh, numbers are climbing in their, re- in their areas, in, particularly in Nova Scotia. So we'll see what happens with all of these, uh, these changes up north of the border, but you certainly see a, kind of a tail two provinces there going on with Nova Scotia and Ontario, and um, we'll certainly follow that uh, as things develop. So that's all we have for you this week on the Midweek Roundup. Until next time, we wish you the very best. Take care.